This is an ABC podcast. G'day and welcome to Between the Lines. This is Tom Switzer and it's always great to have your company. Well, what did you make of the Oprah Winfrey interview with the ex-royal couple? Something else, wasn't it? Harry says he does not want his wife, Megan, to suffer the same fate as his mother, Diana. But according to my guest today, Harry then proceeded to behave in such a way as to guarantee that they both receive maximum media attention of the kind he says was so awful for his mother. And as for Megan, she says she's a victim of racism, but is she just a good actress? I don't think anyone saw her in those terms. I think they saw her as a very smart, very beautiful, very talented, successful woman who was marrying into our royal family and they wished her nothing but the best and the colour of her skin just didn't even enter into it. Stay tuned for Isabel Oakshot on the story of the week, Harry and Meghan. But first, Australia's liberal tradition. Well, there are periods in Australian history when we might have gone down a more radical path. Could we go down that path once the pandemic passes? After all, some of the emergency policies launched to respond to the COVID crisis, they could remain in place. Could those measures entrench government more deeply across the economy and society? Well, we've been here before. Remember after World War II, the status overregulated high taxation regimes deemed essential during the war, well, they lasted after 1945. Food, clothing and petrol rationing, for instance, they persisted for several years. Still, Australians chose liberalism over socialism. That's the subtitle of a new book, A Liberal State. It's written by David Kemp. It's the fourth of five volumes on the history of liberalism in this country. Now, David's career spans academia, and politics. He's been a professor of politics at Monash University and the Vice-Chancellor's Fellow at the University of Melbourne. And he was a federal Liberal MP from 1990 to 2004 and a Cabinet Minister in the Howard Government. David, welcome to Between the Lines. Thank you very much, Tom. Good to be with you. Now, before we address the government's responses to the COVID crisis, let's talk about your multi-volume series on Australian liberalism, since 1788. Summarise succinctly your thesis. In terms of personal freedom and economic freedom and uh, concern for uh, the well-being of individual people, Australia is certainly one of the most liberal countries in the world. It, It may be the most liberal. And if it is, that's a consequence of its foundation at a particular moment in Australian history, uh, which is uh, called the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was in Britain and Europe, and Australia became perhaps the world's greatest experiment in implementing Enlightenment ideas about personal freedom and government in the interests of everyone and the equality of all people as members of a common humanity. When democracy was established in Australia in the 1850s, those ideas became the basis for the policies of democratic governments, and I suppose you could say they became the basis for Australia's success in implementing personal freedom and civil liberties, economic freedom, freedom of association, legal trade unions, humanitarian policies, universal education and so forth. Um, These were ideas in which the well-being of each individual person was the basis of policy and that's why we call them liberal. And 
Today, those ideas are embedded in our institutions and our culture. But along the way, liberalism has confronted a whole lot of what we might call philosophical enemies, prejudice, selfish self-interest, illiberal ideologies. And the books tell the story of how liberalism progressed and what sort of conflicts it was involved in, and uh, particularly the conflict with socialism. And that's what uh, the current volume is about, the fact that in 1949, effectively, the Australian people chose liberalism over socialism. And now we'll get to that in a moment, but take us back to our foundation as a British colony. Now, in your first volume, which goes from 1788 through to 1860, you say that Governor Arthur Phillip was an Enlightenment man, even though he was charged with setting up a penal colony. Tell us more. Well, Arthur Phillip was a really remarkable man, and um, he was seen as such when he was given command over that first fleet. Uh, he was somebody who brought to Australia the ideas of his generation, and those ideas were about the rule of law, and the convicts came to Australia under law, and they came with specific terms and sentences after which they were freed or pardoned. Uh, ideas of equal justice. Uh, Philip was very strong that Australia would never be a slave state or a slave country. Uh, there was a strong belief in the common humanity of all people, and there was a belief that government really should be there in the interest of all. Now, not everybody believed those ideas, but Philip was one of the people at the, the forefront of the intellectual culture of his day. He was a well-educated man, well-read, and he foresaw in Australia a great free country emerging. It was like going to the moon, going to Australia. And um, those ideas became the basis for the country's democratic politics. And if you fast forward to uh, Federation in 1901, um, what distinguishes, say, the liberalism in the United States from the Australian experience? After all, David, many scholars believe that whereas, you know, the Americans fought a war for their independence against the British we Australians were fed our independence by the British in the late 19th century. So what distinguishes the liberalism here from, say, the United States? Well, American liberalism is a, a really um, confusing set of ideas for Australians, I think, uh, because in America, conservative means economic liberal, or what we probably call economic liberalism is the main character of that American conservatism, Whereas what Americans call liberalism, most Australians would call something like uh, reformism or radicalism, but it's freer of, of the sort of liberal content that we understand in Australia and, and really in Britain and Europe. The Americans have developed a unique terminology there. But the reason it didn't end up in a war uh, was because in Britain, the liberals were largely in power during that period, um, and they weren't going to, to fight us over those matters and the Conservatives were frightened Australia might leave the empire and become a republic, uh, as it happened with America in the 1780s. So it was quite a, a, an interesting and a dramatic uh, moment in Australian history. Okay, now getting to your current volume, this period really from the Depression until 1966, when Menzies retires at a time of his choosing. David, I can imagine some of our listeners tuning in would say, well, look, if Australians chose liberalism over socialism during this period, how do you account for the Labor Party's embrace of 
the socialist objective in the 1920s, and of course, the New South Wales Labor Premier Jack Lang's support for the socialisation of industry. Well, it's not so much a matter of me accounting for that because, of course, those those events occurred before the 1949 election when I argued that Australia effectively chose liberalism over socialism. They had a big experience of socialism and, and that experience uh, was in that period when what I call the utopian socialists who uh, sent their ideas to Australia and were very active in Australia, particularly in the Labor Party, uh, after Federation, had given the Labor Party a socialist objective, which the New South Wales Labor Premier, Jack Lang, determined to put into effect and socialise all industry in New South Wales. Uh, and the Liberal movement, which was very um, weakened at that time by what had happened during the First World War and the terrible, horrific uh, humanitarian disaster that the First World War was, and the Great Depression had weakened people's faith in the liberal goals. Uh, And the person who really stood up for liberalism at the time, that is the priority and preeminence of the individual and for individual freedom and for an economy based on private enterprise and markets and prices, uh, was Robert Menzies. And uh, he spelt those ideas out in his Forgotten People and campaigned on them in 1946 and 1949 and, of course, won that 1949 election and remained as Prime Minister for 16 and a half years. But Menzies was also an unashamed advocate for high tariffs, the white Australia restrictionist immigration policy, regulated labour markets. Is there a paradox there? Uh, Well, I think Menzies uh, basically disliked most of those policies or went along with them because if there's one thing about Menzies, he wasn't a crash-through or crash politician. Um, He was somebody who saw that there were some very big issues that were too big to be dealt with easily and quickly, particularly as each of those policies was supported by the Labor Party and protection was, of course, supported by the country party with which he was in coalition. But he he was especially sceptical of business demands for tariffs. He thought they preferred protection to competition and was rather scornful of that. He was certainly opposed to racial hatreds and pursued policies to erode support for white Australia. Menzies was the person who both advocated very large-scale immigration and implemented a huge immigration program, which admitted many people to Australia. And, of course, he was supportive of uh, Jewish refugees from um, uh, Germany uh, during the war, and he admitted Asian students under the Colombo Plan. So he accustomed Australia to think beyond white Australia's. David Kemp is a former Howard Cabinet Minister and author of a multi-volume history of Australian liberalism. Now, David, the latest volume goes from 1926 to 66. What does that mean for your fifth and final volume? Uh, Well, in the last 50 years, uh, the question really is what's happened to liberalism over that period? Um, Where do we stand now in relation to um, all the principles of liberalism in terms of freedoms? religious freedom, economic freedom, political freedom, press freedom, and um, is our economy um, still a basically market-based free enterprise economy with the growth of government? So those are the sort of issues I'll be dealing with in the final volume. Okay, let's turn finally to COVID, the COVID crisis. Now, all the available public polling evidence indicates that these premiers, most notably 
the Western Australian Labor Premier McGowan and, of course, the Victorian Premier Dan Andrews, they've handled the pandemic as well as possible. After all, a lot of lives have been saved. Now, you disagree that they've handled it well. You say that Andrews has presided over a Victorian disaster. How so? Uh, well, I think um, in, in the Victorian case, um, most people will think of the mid-2020 nursing home disaster in which over 600 people died because of the failure of the government's quarantine system. Uh, and I certainly believe that that is the worst administrative failure that's occurred in Australian history. We've never had an administrative failure that has caused more than 600 deaths. Uh, but we've also had in both Victoria and Western Australia, and to some extent Queensland, but mostly in Victoria, extreme lockdowns, uh, which are not justified on, and never were justified by the premiers themselves on health advice, but they were, I believe, evidence that the governments did not have confidence in their contact tracing and quarantine arrangements. And if they had had confidence, the lockdowns would not have been necessary. So, so those lockdowns were evidence of government failure. And the best indication that that is so uh, is that New South Wales pursued an entirely different policy without those random lockdowns and pursued a more open policy in which people could go about their lives because that government had confidence in its contact tracing and quarantine policies. So I am critical of the way in which some of the premiers acted because we know, and one of the outcomes, I think, of, of this whole COVID crisis is how critical freedom is to people's well-being, uh, to their mental well-being, to their capacity to go about their lives and establish their relationships. And we've seen, in fact, contact by crisis support services um, last year uh, rose dramatically over the year. And I, I've just seen some latest figures on this, an increase between 14 and 21% over the previous year. So there are serious problems that arise for a society without freedom. And that's perhaps the strongest evidence that we need to return to conditions of responsible freedom. Um, and I think we will do that. Australians want that. They were highly cooperative. We showed ourselves to be a highly cohesive society when these demands, sometimes extreme demands, were placed on the community. But it's quite clear from various surveys that were done last year that Australians believe their democratic institutions need to be strengthened and revived and uh, that their freedoms need to be restored. And I expect that that will happen and that Australia will revert to the kind of society it was before the pandemic. That may not happen overnight, but the vaccine certainly holds out a lot of hope. So when this is over, responsible government should do everything to ensure a, a true return to normal and recognise the vital importance of freedom, not just on economic issues, but our general wellbeing. David, thanks so much for being on Radio National. It's a great pleasure, Tom. Thank you. David Kemp, he's author of A Liberal State, How Australians Chose Liberalism Over Socialism. It's from 1926 to 1966. It's published by the Miangaha Press. It's an imprint of Melbourne University Publishing. On RN, this is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer. Well, unquestionably, the big international media story of the week 
No surprises here. It was the two-hour Oprah Winfrey interview with Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. What did you think? Well, what did we hear? That the royal family was concerned about how dark son Archie's skin would be? That Charles stopped taking calls from son Harry during Megxit? And that the pregnant Duchess feared that she would commit suicide if Harry left her home alone? Their Australian tour triggered jealousy over the young couple's popularity. So what does all this mean for the British royal family? To what extent has the Oprah interview damaged the firm? Or have Harry and Meghan just behaved appallingly? Isabel Oakeshott is a British author and former political editor of the Daily Mail and the Sunday Times in London. Isabel, welcome back to ABC Radio National. Hi, nice to be here. Now, your thoughts on the interview? Well, this is absolutely sensational. I mean, make no mistake, the royal family are reeling from this interview. They had a good long time to prepare for it. You know, it was well trailed. Uh, we were told amid uh, breathless anticipation that this was Oprah's best interview ever. So the royal family knew that it wasn't going to be a dull affair, uh, but they have been left shocked just by you know revelation after revelation. The big question for the royal family was, was, will they go there with the racism card? And I think there was some hope that they just wouldn't press that nuclear button. And indeed, as the world now knows, they did press that button and more, you know, with Meghan saying that she so lacked support from the firm that she was uh, thinking about killing herself. It really couldn't be worse in terms of the content of that interview and obviously the global publicity that it's attracted. And I think an indication of just how blindsided the royal family have been by the content of the interview is the fact that the Queen has asked for more time to respond. So the Buckingham Palace was under a lot of pressure yesterday to put out a statement, a formal response, and nothing has yet been forthcoming. The Queen, uh, whose husband, as, as, as many of your listeners will know, is gravely ill in hospital, needs time to reflect on how on earth to manage this thing. You know, do you put out a, a curt and terse statement or do you, as, as I understand she was minded to do yesterday, uh, kind of smother them in love and put out something that's sympathetic and understanding? A very, very difficult call for the royal family now. Now, Harry and Meghan frame themselves as victims of a much larger evils in society, that they're, you know, they're just highlighting systemic flaws in Western society. They talk about racism, sexism, transphobia, all the microaggressions caused by errant words. Do they have a case? Well, this stuff goes down very well with um, younger people. If you look at the polling um, on opinions of Meghan and Harry, they are certainly much more popular amongst younger people in the UK. I mean, they're not hugely popular amongst anybody in the UK, but where there is sympathy for them, it tends to be in people aged under 40 and probably really aged under 25. Uh, but I think it's it's very difficult to to take some of those claims seriously. I mean, the racism thing, I just don't see it. You know, I've spent uh, my whole career in newspapers. Uh, I, I think you've got to look at the tremendously positive coverage that the wedding had. We now know that wedding was actually something of a sham because they were already married and, you know, mm. people may have views on that. But the couple had such a warm welcome from the British press. I think people really wanted 
this to be a fairy tale. You know, the images from their wedding on that beautiful day outside Windsor were wonderful for the British brand. This is all pre-corona nightmare. We all thought it was going to be great for for tourism and the institution of the monarchy. So it's just not the case to say that there was an undercurrent and that anyone was looking for this to fail. I think some people will have had some concerns about perhaps a a cultural gap there with an American actress marrying into the royal family. And those concerns have proven to be entirely legitimate. What about Meghan's yearning for privacy? I mean, isn't it true that the British press, especially the tabloid press, they can be aggressively intrusive in ways anyone would find painful though, right? Well, I mean, the irony of this is that the British press is a whole lot less intrusive since Diana. I mean, I watched how things have changed over the years. Um, You know, having been on tabloids at the beginning of my career, we were very intrusive. But, you know, numerous government led um, commissions and inquiries actually changed the way the press operates. And it is a much more restrained environment now. Now, that's not to say that the British press doesn't do a very, very good job of holding those in high positions of high responsibility and privilege and influence to account. Um, But it's not, I don't think, fair to say that Meghan and Harry suffered endlessly intrusive press. And I think the great irony here is if they were so um, loath to have this type of media coverage, then why go on one of the biggest rated Uh, shows in America, in the world, and simply fuel the fire. I mean, it was open to them, having made their dramatic decision to bail out of the royal family, to disappear quietly. If they didn't want any publicity, then that's what they could have done. And instead, they have actually taken the very steps that would ensure the maximum publicity. That doesn't sit too easily with a plea for privacy. Isabel Oakeshott is a British author and former political editor of the Daily Mail and the Sunday Times in London. Okay, back to race. In response to the interview, the Oprah interview we're talking about here, the Guardian newspaper, obviously on the ideological left, but it reported the views of several British women who say the royal controversy points to Britain's failure to confront its racist attitudes. And in response to the interview, uh, Britain's Labour opposition has called for an inquiry into the royal family over an allegation of racism made in the interview. Well, I mean, this is just such a load of old rubbish, isn't it? I mean, I just I, I just don't see it. I mean, th- that's the kind of thing that the Labour Party does. It's the opposition. You know, it is their role to call for an inquiry. Um, I can't see that inquiry happening. How would it play out? We don't know who actually said, um, who actually made those alleged comments. We don't even know if that allegation is true. And I really struggle to see how an inquiry would be conducted. And Harry made it very clear it was neither the Queen nor Prince Philip who made those remarks. I suppose what you're saying here, just get back to your earlier point, Isabel, about this demographic divide here between those who, like yourself, you're critical of Megan, and then there's the other mainly younger people, uh, often minorities, who've leapt to her defence. They're the younger people. They're the future of Britain. To the extent those attitudes prevail, does that mean the monarchy is now on the back foot more than any time since Diana's death in 1997. I think that's fair, um, but I don't think it's because of the racism allegation. I think it's just because of the whole toxic, swirling mess. It's just very ugly, isn't it? Uh, It's horrible to watch. There's just been so much of it. 
Uh, and I think the monarchy isn't in a great place, but the monarchy will endure. It's not in a great place this week, but it will pick itself up. I think surprising beneficiaries of this will actually be Prince William and his wife, Catherine. Um, I think they've behaved impeccably throughout. Uh, Catherine, after all, was put in the same position as Meghan, albeit coming from a very different um, family background and has never really put a foot wrong. Um, and I think that the the public will will kind of rally to them because they are now really uh, re they represent the future. And in terms of, of British society having some kind of endemic racism problem, I just don't get it. And I, for the vast majority of people, I don't really think that they saw Meghan as having been of any kind of uh, non-white background. I don't think anyone saw her in those terms. I think they saw her as a very smart, very beautiful, very talented, successful woman who was marrying into our royal family and they wished her nothing but the best. And the colour of her skin just didn't even enter into it. Nick Timothy in London's Daily Telegraph talks about how victimhood and hypocrisy are the new markers of class in our postmodern landscape. Nick Timothy says, Meghan Markle can lecture the world about the need for kindness and justice without acknowledging her own alleged bullying of junior royal staff. Scrutiny is dismissed as racially charged and misogynistic. Now that's your line too, isn't it, Isabel? Yes, yeah, so and Nick Timothy is a great man, and I agree with every word that he says there. I mean, look, it's all too depressingly predictable, isn't it? You know, you have a rough time, and then you and you call the racism card. And you know, look, the polling shows that most British people have very little sympathy for Meghan and Harry. Uh, only a handful of people, twelve percent, according to YouGov polling, have a lot of sympathy, and I'm surprised it's as high as that. Uh, you know, this is. Uh, it's just not something that people are, are really going to buy into, given the scale of privilege. And, and look, if, if Meghan Markle has been a victim of racism, she's really been a most remarkable woman to have overcome it to the extent that she has. You know, she's reached the, the top of her game in, in her acting career. She married into the royal family and everybody was there trying to give her every bit of support. And as you reference, you know, her own behaviour has been called into question. So it's a very messy picture, isn't it? Finally, let's put this in an international context. How do you think other nations are viewing Britain as a result of the royals? Because this has been, this interview has been an international blockbuster, huge ratings in Australia, obviously the United States, all across the world. How are other nations viewing Britain as a result of all this? I dread to think, Tom, I really dread to think, look, <laughs> We don't need it right now, do we? You know, we had the debacle of Brexit, and I say that as a Brexiteer. It was an absolute farce actually getting Brexit over the line. We then got mm. the worst mortality rates from coronavirus in the world per capita, and now we've got the kind of royal family car crash. We just didn't need this right now. And if you look at the polling, in America, it's very different to, to how it is here uh, in the UK. Most Americans seem to be a lot more sympathetic to Meghan and Harry uh, than, than British people are. So, look, I think the, the royal family continues to fascinate people all over the world. I think the Queen continues to be held in the highest of respect. I've seen no criticism of the Queen herself. 
herself from Meghan and Harry. That's the one thing that they held back from. And by the way, it's good, I think. I was relieved that they clarified that those alleged comments about the colour of baby's skin did not come from Prince Philip because he was the immediate suspect, just having had a a history of being rather politically incorrect. (laughs) Um, So good that that was clarified. So look, the royal family will endure. It is a great British institution. And I think that we will see a kind of fight back, um, perhaps not immediately, but you'll see uh, William and Kate taking a much more prominent role uh, once coronavirus restrictions are eased and they're able to get out and about again. Isabel, always lovely to have you on Radio National. Thank you so much. I love coming on your show. Thank you. That was Isabel Oakshop. She's a former political editor for the Daily Mail and the Sunday Times in London. Well, that's it for the show. And if you'd like to hear past episodes, including our recent China policy debate between the Singaporean intellectual and former diplomat, Kishore Mabubani, and the journalist Peter Harcher from the Sydney Morning Herald, just go to abc.net.au and follow the prompts to Between the Lines. Or, of course, you can just go to the ABC Listen app or wherever you download your shows. This is Tom Switzer from ABC's Radio National. Hope you can tune in again next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.